Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. It's our first show of the new year. We're so happy that you stuck with us over the holidays. It's dangerous for us to set the bar this high for the new year, but we'll give it a shot. We have California State Senator Dave Min, who is running for Katie Porter's congressional seat. And we have one of our favorite comedians, Taylor Williams, who's got a great new special on YouTube. And he's going to tell us all about what's in store for 24 exciting gigs coming up. But first, Wheezy, what do you have? Well, Fritz, do you have a Google alert on your own name? Yes. It's it's educational, isn't it? I learned a lot. You should uh, you should have one. Everyone should have one because you can learn something very interesting about yourself. For example, this is very exciting. According to newsunzip.com, which is a very, you know, credible, reputable source, in the early 60s, I was married to Tommy Smothers. Well, that had been the rumor, but I always felt like it would insult you if I asked you. Confirmation. It says right here, Tom was a gifted athlete and a competitive unicyclist. He also excelled in gymnastics and pole vaulting. He attended San Jose University, where he met his future wife, Louise Palanker. They married in 1959 and had two sons, Thomas and Bo. Now, this is on the Internet, so it must be true. And I'm wondering why I don't have a better memory of marrying Tommy Smothers. And I think it's because I was two years old. Yeah. So I only I, I only really remember spending much of the 60s in our den obsessively playing his records and begging my parents to stay up past my bedtime so I could watch the second half of the Smothers Brothers comedy hour. If I was sent to bed at 930, I would stand in the hallway and listen to the rest of the show. I did love him very much. So I thank you, Tommy, for blending silly with brilliance and lessons and advocacy and courage and harmony and hilarity. And for our two beautiful boys, Bo and little Tommy, and I hope to meet them one day. Well done. Yeah. Do you have anything uh, to recommend? This no, week I just love him. I know his manager, Ken Fritz, oh. and um, and he has wonderful stories about what it was like to box against CBS back in those days and be the last bastion of a clear voice in that pressure-filled business world. It, it was, was the Paley's and all those guys that owned CBS. They were, no, they were they were groundbreaking. They and, went straight up against censorship, and they just yeah, did that. And, and David Steinberg, who wrote on that show, wrote a great little piece that's somewhere on the internet about it. And Ken himself, who managed, he, he was in combination with Ken Cragen, who was his other manager, wrote a beautiful piece about what, what a lovely soul he was. And he just liked to fight. He just loved the scrapping of it. So it was interesting. So are you going to recommend something first? I'm going to recommend something okay. first. I'm going to talk about May, December. This okay. is a show on Netflix. This is a story loosely inspired. I mean, very loosely inspired on the life of teacher Mary Kay Letourneau, who began a relationship with one of her sixth grade male students. After she did a couple of prison stints, she married him. A May-December romance obviously refers to a relationship that has a huge age gap. It's labeled loosely based because the names are changed, the chronology uh, chronology has changed, the circumstances are changed, but the crux is there. It's the story of a teacher who has a relationship with a 13-year-old boy. It stars Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. The action starts 23 years into this marriage. The couple has three kids together. Moore plays the teacher. Portman plays an actor who will play the teacher in a movie and sort of injects herself into this family. Natalie meets all the characters in the teacher's life, including the ex-husband and the children by her previous marriage. She goes to the scenes where their early relationship plays out, including where the teacher and the student first had sex in the back room of a store. You can't really call this a biopic because the names and the chronology and the details are changed. In the film, the teacher's name is Grace. 
she was portrayed as everything from naive to passive to narcissistic to very destructive. Sigmund Freud could do a podcast series about this woman. When the story came out, the world seemed bewildered by the woman's behavior. What would cause a woman to cross this line and incur the judgment of the world? Well, fictionalized, the circumstances may have allowed them to go a little deeper into the characters. There was some trauma from Grace's childhood that may or may not have been factual. When this story was red hot headlines years ago, we only got to see it two-dimensionally in the superficial news coverage. The film puts faces on the story, beautifully acted by Julianne Moore and the actress played by Natalie Portman. In May-December romance, the names and the circumstances have been changed to allow the freedom to get deeper into the truth of the story, I guess. I wish it was more factual than it was. I I was uh, low-key creeped. And uh, for me, Fritz, I, I felt like it turned child molestation into performance art. And I, you know, I know it's getting a lot of attention and buzz, but I, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, it was creepy. And uh, and um, the thing I'm talking about was th- there were sort of trial balloons raised in this story, at least with a couple of lines of dialogue about her maybe having been molested as a child by somebody in the family, which would have explained it. But then they sort of reneged on that. Um, hint a little later on so I don't know she, she was she was creepy but then I thought well she married the guy they had three kids the last one's in college and I thought I don't know I mean they have a kid who's going to college who's the same age as his father so yeah. it's really, how does that work all right it's quite is quite odd I would say don't don't have a meal over it I, if you're no, going it's, to, uh, it's very disturbing yeah, it's, it's, it's disturbing. a very current topic mm-hmm. so Fritz I'm going to talk about uh our friend Henry's book. I'm so glad. Being Henry. I read and adored Henry Winkler's book, Being Henry, The Fawns and Beyond. I learned a lot. I found out, for example, that we were not married in the early 60s. So <laughs> well, it's good. It's interesting to, to learn. Um, Henry Winkler is his own marvelous creation. His life begins with severe, judgmental, and harsh parents and without the ability to read. These two impediments compound one another. Henry was dyslexic, undiagnosed, and untreated. His father called him a dumb dog. Still, Henry, through his own grit and determination and resilient compass, retained the ability to dig deep, find his voice, and thrive. The Fonz becomes legend not by accident, not by happenstance, but because of Henry's unique gifts as an actor. But while the world saw cool, Henry felt uncomfortable. Fonzie's mark on pop culture was indelible, and Henry just wanted to keep acting. But if his harsh childhood did not crush his spirit, then neither would the typecasting which follows such an iconic role. This lovely book shares the wonderful stories which populate his memories, and his honesty and fortitude may inspire you to conquer your next horizon. The Boy Who Couldn't Read has now written over 50 books, including his children's book series and this touching and beautiful memoir. Henry writes with wisdom, humor, warmth, and humanity. We can all dig a little deeper, discover a little more about ourselves, and do a little better. Reading this book will inspire you to do exactly that. Well, you and I have backstory with Henry, and you have more backstory than I have backstory. But people always ask me, uh, having dealt with him, my opinion of him, and I always say unequivocally, he is the single nicest person I've ever met in show business. Just a human being to his bones. I just love the man. I'm sure it's going to be very successful for Oh, him. it is. It's already been like, I think this is the ninth week on the on the top seller list. Good for list. him. Yeah. So. 
Love you, Henry. Well, we're very honored to have our first guest with us. In 2020, he was elected California State Senator from the 37th District in Orange County. He's currently running for Katie Porter's congressional seat as Katie runs for California Senate. And he has been endorsed by the aforementioned Katie Porter. He's a first-generation Korean-American, and we're very happy to have him with us today. Please welcome Senator Dave Mint. Senator, nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Fritz. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. So, Good to see you, Louis. In your first year of office, you authored eight bills, which is pretty, which is pretty uh, productive. Bold and aggressive gun violence prevention, climate action, small business advocacy, domestic violence, reproductive rights. And all of these issues that you've fought for in Sacramento are also national points of interest as well. So it's probably going to be a smooth transition for you to start thinking nationally as opposed to locally. Let's talk about them. First of all, gun violence. Um, There seems to be a disconnect between the polling that says most Americans support sensible gun legislations, but we can't get over the hump as a country. Even Justice Scalia said about the Second Amendment, there isn't 100 percent freedom. How do we succeed with the gun violence issue? I I think we just have to keep working nonstop. And, you know, I come at this issue with a fairly recent lens, because when I taught, so before being a state senator, I was a law professor at UC Irvine. And before then, I'd worked in public policy, particularly federal economic policy, but uh, nothing related to guns. Uh, so my, my focus was on banking regulation, law and economics, things like that. Uh, and I had testified six times before com- Congress. I had actually proposed and developed uh, major legislative initiatives Uh, including the big one on what to do with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back in 2009 to 2010 after they'd been put into conservatorship. But the gun debate is something new to me. And, you know, I really have spent my career on the policy side of things. And this is fundamentally a political problem today because we know what the answers are on reducing gun violence. It, It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around and say, hey, no other developed nation in the world has anything close to the level of gun violence that we have. But at the same time, no one, no developed nation in the world has close to the levels of laxity of access to guns, particularly high capacity guns, the guns that do the most harm, uh, concealed carry, et cetera. We're unique in those regards. And it's been a political problem. I think we're starting to win the political debate here. Uh, And when I go around the country uh, or even the halls of Sacramento and I see those red shirts, the orange shirts for Brady, uh, the red shirts for Mom Demands Action, Moms Demand Action. I see this, and I think we're starting to turn the tide there. Uh, more and more of my colleagues are uh, more and more emboldened and willing to go up against the NRA today. And that was not the case a generation ago. So uh, I will proudly brandish the fact that I have an F rating from the NRA, and I expect I will always have an F rating from the NRA. And I think that that's a great thing these days. We're winning. The problem today is that the vestiges of the NRA's influence still remain with the federal courts and the state courts, but really federal judiciary. And we see these extremist judges that are more and more willing to just make up laws. Um, this, this recent decision uh, saying that we have to go back to the 1700s, 1800s to look for analogs on gun regulations, uh, it kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, even the 2005 decision in Heller, which created and, and established the very first time in history an individual right to bear arms, which no previous court had ever found with the Second Amendment, uh, that was something they invented. And we are seeing more and more aggressive decisions by federal judges, including the one 
uh, recently by a judge, a Trump appointed judge in Orange County to issue a preliminary injunction and find unconstitutional uh, a couple of bills I propose saying that the state doesn't have to set will not allow the sale of guns and ammunitions on our property. Uh, wow. And here the judge, I, I could go in the details, but the judge basically made up a new Second Amendment right and a new First Amendment right, which, if applied across the board, would basically eviscerate all of our gun laws, uh, our ability to say that we could regulate guns that go into any public places, uh, sports stadiums, arenas, basketball games, plays, theaters. Imagine that we could not say you can't bring guns into public venues, uh, as well as saying to us we can't. Uh, control what happens on our state property, that a free a, a, a First Amendment right of association exists that we cannot overcome. So we are seeing some very, very aggressive um, lawmaking, essentially, by unelected judges, primarily appointed by Trump. But yeah, the, this goes back several generations. Wow. Uh, and we have to fight that, too. So what we have to be doing at the federal and state level is to keep chipping away, even if we know that the courts may end up deciding some of our stuff is unconstitutional. We need to start setting that record in the same way that the right wing for so long went after Roe v. Wade, went after the Second Amendment. And, and we need to adopt that same strategy of, of proposing aggressive laws and, and trying to take back the judiciary in the process, because that's the only way I can think of to try to save lives and prevent our kids from having to go through the nonsensical uh, and, and very sad fact that they have so, to go through these drill shooting drills all the time. Well, if we're going to look at uh, 18th century law, why can't we just have everyone with assault rifle traded in for a musket? That'd be great. Yep. Maybe we should propose that law next year. Weezy, I want you to introduce your brilliant nephew who is a has a climate conscience of his own and would love to ask the senator a question. This is the child of my sister, Amy. Uh, this child is uh, somewhat of a genius. Don't be too intimidated, Senator. <laughs> uh, but uh, they have some questions for you. Uh, hi, Senator. Um, I wanted to ask a question regarding your role as the uh, chair of the State Natural Resource and Water Commission and climate change as it affects California in specific, now spreading as your interest to the entire United States. Uh, in California, we're kind of used to leading the pack when it comes to progressive policies or technologies, implementing things that kind of the federal government lags behind us. And in many ways, we're kind of setting the standard going forward. And, and I wanted to ask how you thought California itself is equipped to handle the presumptive water shortages as we're being impacted by the effects of climate change and how focusing from the federal perspective, things like the Biden-Harris Colorado River water agreements, uh, how, how you think from the federal government we can be doing a better job managing these crises, which will affect us all yeah. together, but also state by state. Jake, don't be better yeah, so than I the host. <laughs> oh, I'm Jake. Hi. <laughs> Jake. Very nice to meet you, Jake. Thanks nice for the question. Um, and, and so before I answer that, I just want to talk briefly about the stakes of climate generally, because um, I, I think that the heart of your question is an assumption that you and I share, pr presumably all of the viewers of this podcast or listeners share, but that many Americans unfortunately don't, which is that climate change, if unless and until we aggressively reverse the trends is going to have massive impacts on our way of life. Our basic existence is under jeopardy right now. Uh, and things like water rights will be more quickly than we think at, at jeopardy. And the way I always phrase this when I talk to people about the importance of decarbonizing our economy is to ask them, like, do you have someone in your life that you care about, that you love, that you think will be alive in 2045 or 2060 or 2080? Because if you do, Knowing the science that we now know, 
we have a moral imperative to act with urgency. The, the science is overwhelming. Climate change is here and it's happening more rapidly with negative feedback cycles that we had not anticipated. We have to act. And I think that the Biden-Harris administration's approach is the right one. We just need a lot more of it, which is we innovation and infrastructure are going to be how we solve this problem. Uh, I can't ask people to stop turning on the lights uh, or to stop cooking or to stop you know, traveling to their places of work. Uh, but what we can do is use public capital and public incentives to try to drive private capital into innovation in a way that really creates jobs, but also jumpstarts green innovation. We've seen other countries already recognize this as the economy of the future. Uh, and I think California can and should and must continue to lead. And unfortunately, we're not on track to meet our 2030, 2045 goals in any capacity. Are we at the we're tipping point? Every other state, there are obviously. people talking about us being at the tipping point right now. We have no chance to, to, to it's, it's almost done. Uh, uh, do you, do you, are you more hopeful than that? Uh, we're past the tipping point already, is my understanding, that we are not going to reach the UN climate goals for, or the IPCC climate goals for 2045. That that's almost impossible at this point. If we were to stop all carbon emissions today, that we'd probably still, because of the lag, uh, shoot past those temperature targets. So uh, we're going to see some significant changes. Uh, but obviously, these things are in gradations. The more we slow down and reverse the trends on climate and carbon emissions now, the less pain we'll have down the future. But yes, we, we may very well see in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, in Jacob's lifetime, maybe in your lifetimes, uh, wars over things we take for granted now, including water. Uh, and so coming back to the original question, sorry to kind of dodge that there, but uh, we, we do face a, a big need to try to do something big on water here in the state of California and really federally. And, and part of this goes back to the fact that California is a largely a boom bust place, a lot of it's desert when it comes to water. <clears throat> but a lot more of it comes back to the fact that uh, we have not meaningfully invested in any infrastructure in about 100 years. And so with our water infrastructure, like the last time we shored up a lot of our dams was like back in the 1940s, 1950s. And so we have to do a lot of that. And then we have to update our water infrastructure for uh, the 2100s, right? How do we do all this, the 2000s, 2100s? How do we move forward in, in thinking about recycling, in drought preservation, in, in capturing water runoff, in recharging groundwater? Uh, the infrastructure is not there right now. And a lot of Californians have rightfully pointed out and complained, hey, we had these record flood years. And where, why were we not capturing the water for that? Uh, and so that's what we're talking about right now. We're talking about a major climate bond going forward in, in this year's um, election cycle. And that's something we'll be signing off on in its final forms, uh, I believe, in, in, in the coming months. Uh, I'm guessing it'll probably be on the November ballot. And as a reminder, I think the state has something like $16 billion total in bonding capacity. And we know that the governor and many of, including myself, my, my colleagues, really want to emphasize doing something about uh, mental health and homelessness. And so there will be a bond already on those issues. So we don't have unlimited money, but what we're trying to do is find out, figure out uh, with this climate bond, which will address some other climate issues, but will also a, a big chunk of it will go to water. Uh, what are the right places to invest? And, and so thinking about those, those, but I'll just give you an example of a really great project here where it's an example of private and public funding working together. And that's got to be the model going forward, as well as federal, state, and local. Here in Orange County, uh, and, and you guys probably think we're backwaters, and, but on water policy, we are way ahead of the curve. 
Uh, and we've been recycling um, almost all of our water for a long time now. In fact, here in my home city, Irvine, about five minutes from where I live, we have this amazing bird sanctuary. And if you walk around, it's a very relaxing, nice place to take a little hike. Uh, what most people don't realize, I didn't realize this until I became a state senator, and it was actually pointed out to me, uh, is it's, it's actually a uh, recycling facility. It, it's four man-made lakes that naturally filtrate the sewage so that by the time it goes back into the San Joaquin River, it is uh, filtered out. But it's also become a, a refuge for rare and endangered birds. So it actually is a bird sanctuary now as well as the type of project we should be thinking how to scale up. Uh, we also did this brand new project that I just was at the ribbon cutting of earlier last year. That is the first toilets to groundwater project in the state. And so what they do is they recycle the water and put it into the groundwater, the ground form of groundwater recharge. And from there, we store that water so that we can use it as we need it. Uh, it gets away from some of the ickiness of that toilets to taps debate. I think that's becoming more and more moot. Uh, but, but how do we fund projects like that with scarce taxpayer dollars? Uh, we know the bond's going to be part of that. You know, I just want to interject here that every year I host the Orange County Water Conference. I don't know if you've ever attended that, but it's yep. fascinating. And I just wish they'd make this available to the general public because it's so interesting. They get all the people who are applied to the water industry, the various districts up and down the uh, uh, coast. And Irvine is always one of the great examples of how it could be done in the future because they have sort of an independent water area. They talk about desalination in Seal Beach and uh, Huntington Beach and the cost of all that and how Israel has been able to uh, do this effectively because it's, it's, a, it's a matter of scale. If you get enough people involved, it's not as expensive as it might be otherwise. And it's fascinating. I just wish the general public was more aware of these water issues in California because, as you say, it's going to be in a few years like oil. It'll be a major global political issue. In fact, I would say right now that the net present value of water is probably higher than oil wow. because oil is declining in, in price in the long run and water, it, the scarcity of water is going to be a bigger and bigger issue. And that brings me to the last thing. And I realize water is not a topic that people find sexy, uh, but they don't have that is when people start caring. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to come across pretty soon. So uh, our water rights are based on English property law concepts that go back to like the 1500s. And that's because we're an English common law you know, country. But those basically are around first claimer, first mover, who for, you know, John Locke, if you remember that from philosophy mm -hmm. classes and in college, probably you were not paying attention. But um, <laughs> it, it goes back to stuff like that. And the problem is that those don't make sense for a scarce resource like water. And so right now we have these competing water rights. And we're not sure fundamentally at the end of the day if all those water rights are 100 percent valid. So if you have a right to sip a bunch of water out of a, a given pool and you, you, you claim it has gives you this much capacity and someone else is claiming it gives them their rights, give them a certain amount of capacity. That's all well and good until the water itself doesn't meet the rights that you're all claiming. And so one of the things I've tried to do as the Natural Resources and Water Chair unsuccessfully today, but I, I'm sure we'll keep trying this year, is to try to push through some of these bills that have been authored by people in the Senate and Assembly to try to proactively get at the question of what water rights are real and what are not. Uh, obviously, the water agencies are opposed to this. They don't they kind of prefer to put their heads in the sand and not know what their water rights look like. Uh, but I do think it's really, really important for us to start figuring out so we can start, you know, 
taking prudent decisions around water policy going forward. And, and the English water rights, are they're so archaic because don't they say that whoever discovered the water first owns the water? So you have Indian tribes, indigenous tribes in the Pacific Northwest, in the Cascades, in the Siskiyous, in the Northern Sierra, that discovered these water rights and now they're claiming ownership over them. And so it's a big negotiation between them and the public water uh, rights folks. It's uh, it just seems so. It seems two hundred years outdated. Well, and if you're upstream, you obviously impact downstream water rights. Uh, and the craziest thing, I when I first became chair of water and the Natural Resources and Water Committee, when I kind of learned about some of the incentives are crazy here. Which is, you know, for, for a lot of these water rights, if you don't use the water, you lose the rights to it. So you, you know, when I first met some of my water agencies, they're like, yeah, we invest in a lot of alfalfa. It's like, why, why are you randomly farming alfalfa? Oh, because it uses a lot of water and we need to use up water in, in boom years. And it's like, that makes no sense. Wow. Uh, but that's the system we deal with. Wow. Um, tell us about California's uh, 47th congressional district and, and its overlap with the current district that you serve in, in the California Senate. Well, California 47th congressional district has been capably represented by Katie Porter for uh, almost two years now, or about a year. And that's because it just was created as a new district in the 2020 redistricting. And so it's an amalgam of uh, the district Katie used to represent, California's 45th, and the district that Harley Ruda and Michelle Steele used to represent, California's 48th. And it's kind of roughly almost 50-50 split between those two. Uh, after redistricting, Katie Porter uh, chose to run in this district, which consists of the cities of Irvine, Costa Mesa, Laguna Beach, Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, and Seal Beach. Uh, and Michelle Steele, the Republican who was in that uh, part of that seat at the time, decided to move to the West to not have to face off against Katie Porter, presumably. So she ran in the 45th, the new 45th, which is uh, heavily Asian and includes cities like uh, Garden Grove, Westminster, Fountain Valley, and a lot of others. Um, and, and Katie barely held on to the seat. She won by three points and had to spend well north of $20 million to keep it blue. And as a result of that, it is seen as the Republicans' top target. Um, and they have clearly prioritized this uh, race as their top pickup opportunity. Uh, and they're running the same guy they ran last year, a guy named Scott Baugh, former assemblyman, uh, Republican, uh, used to maybe represent part of this area, but kind of known for the last uh, 20 to 30 years, primarily for being a lobbyist. And so... Um, you know, I'm a state senator. I was elected in 2020, as you mentioned. I'm not the comedian, obviously. I, don't, I only tell bad dad jokes. <laughs> Just to clarify. Yeah. Were you, you married to Tommy Smothers? Were you ever married to Tommy Smothers? <laughs> no, no, never. Okay. But, you know, there's maybe there's still time. <laughs> not um, much time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so this district is one that I actually represent 85% of already. And, and when I won in 2020, I flipped this seat blue. It had not been held by a Democrat in modern times. I defeated a, a longtime Republican institution, a guy named John Morlock, uh, who took credit for predicting and, and doing everything he could to prevent Orange County's bankruptcy back in the 1990s, uh, and really had been in politics out here for, I think, something like 30 years when I ran and beat him. And uh, no one really thought we had a chance. I was not an elected official when I ran. I was a UC Irvine law professor at the time. Uh, but I, I think we had a strong message. We were able to unseat him in a pretty close race. Uh, and in this, pertinently in this same area that I re represent, the, over the 47th, 85% uh, overlap, uh, I won this area by over five percentage points. And, and I outperformed other Democrats who overlapped with me that year. And so I think we've got a very strong chance of keeping it blue. 
Uh, recent polling has us up seven points over the likely Republican. Um, we, we've got a lot of work to do, obviously, but, uh, you know, I think the, the baseline's there. And I, I think I'm, you know, I'm not Katie Porter. I'm, I'm not um, the household name she is. I, I'm not going to raise 20 to $30 million like she did. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are a lot of folks who think I'm a pretty good fit for the district. Uh, and, and in particular, you know, there, a lot of the swing votes down here in past election cycles have been Asian American. Uh, I'm Korean American, but my last name, Min, could be Chinese or Vietnamese. And as it turns out, those are the three largest That's uh, good populations yeah. out here, Asian American, Pacific Islander population. So uh, they all hopefully will continue to think I'm one of them and continue voting for me. <laughs> uh, but, but we have overperformed with that voting block, obviously. And that, that's an important one we need to grab because they, they've not decided. I think most voting blocks have kind of decided ahead of next year or ahead of this year's late elections, you know, if they're going to vote for Trump or Biden and how so. And what we're finding in all the polling is that most voters are really locked in. That's not true of the Asian American vote. They have gone back and forth. Uh, and, and I think I have not only a profile that appeals to them, but I think I'm building a record. Uh, they're very progressive on issues around climate, around gun violence protection. Uh, I've been vocal in standing up against hate and discrimination of all kinds, not only against the Asian American community, but unfortunately, being Orange County, representing Huntington Beach, we do see uh, a lot of anti-LGBT sentiment, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and trying to be vocal and standing up against that hate. Uh, but like my district, I'm seen as, you know, uh, a little bit more moderate on public safety issues. And I actually have the endorsement of police in this race, which I know can strike a lot of Democrats the wrong way. But I'll just say, I, I, I believe I have a more nuanced view of police and, and public safety than maybe some of my colleagues in the legislature. I uh, certainly want to see us get rid of racist policing of bad cops. And I voted for those bills. Uh, but I, I'm a little more reticent to uh, engage in a lot of social experimentation and, and, and decriminalize a lot of things without knowing how that's going to impact incentives and things like that. Um, but yeah, and in any event, I think we've got a strong profile to win this race. And, um, you know, we're plugging ahead. We're continuing to uh, be among the leaders in the country on the Democratic side on fundraising. A lot of excitement around this race. In addition to Katie Porter's endorsement, uh, the California Democratic Party's endorsed my race. Um, uh, as have something like 160 local, state, and federal officials. And those local ones are the most important, I think, because um, that, that reflects, I think, the partnership that I've had with my local elected since getting elected myself, uh, the community building that we're doing together. You know, um, um, you represent this fascinating metamorphosis of Orange County politics to me. Because when I first moved out here, they didn't call it Orange County. They called it living behind the orange curtain because it was the base. It was the Petri dish in which Ronald Reagan conservatism was built. And now people like you and Katie and these others have made it a more democratic uh, uh, area. And uh, it's 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 very exciting. It's made it a very competitive uh, a county and uh, and we feel you'll do a good job. Do you think you you could quickly go to Washington and uh, cure the quagmire down there? Look what you're walking into. Are you sure you want to do this? I'm going to solve all the problems on day one. Okay. Um, no, I mean, look. Um, what I hope to do is I'm a realist, and and I I think that there's things we can do and things we can't do. Realistically, as 435 of 435 as a freshman representative, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be the one that's like powering through major legislation. But where I hope to add is on policy building. And I, I think it would be a mistake for me to try to go in and be Katie Porter. Katie Porter was unique, uniquely talented, uniquely charismatic. Um, and, you know, she, 
you know, and just I use this line sometimes, but you know, she taught with a whiteboard. I taught with PowerPoint when we were at UCI together. Okay. And uh, you know, we're Fair. different styles, different people, and it would be a mistake for me to try to adopt someone else's um, uh, whole purview. But but what I think I bring to the table is a career focused on on strong policy analysis with a good understanding of the political coalitions we need to get things done. And that's what, without getting too inside baseball, inside Washington, uh, you know, I, I do have more Washington experience than anyone else uh, running on the, on the Republican or Democratic side of my race, and a lot more federal experience than I think most candidates do, uh, because I spent like 10 years working in Washington. Um, and I can't say that that totally gave me, you know, insight into everything we need to do, but, but I think it gave me a little bit of experience figuring out, okay, what are some of the things we have to do? I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I helped design the major legislation on Fannie and Freddie. And just real quickly, that was an 18-month process where at the Center for American Progress, I led an effort to build a coalition of stakeholders, uh, left and right. We had the bankers, the NAACP, the affordable housing advocates, the home builders, a big tent process. And we just hammered out consensus over many, many months. Uh, and we got something at the table. We actually got it passed out of the Senate Banking Committee, which was then controlled by the Republicans, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, but unfortunately, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House at the time, and he's very much like a, a strong libertarian when it comes to you know housing and banking, and did not feel the government should have any role. So he just killed our bill. But but you know we we went pretty far for a bill that controversial and that detailed, and uh, that's the type of work we'll have to do in Washington. We need you but to the go back there now and then. Is that you know, I didn't have to deal with people like Lauren Brobert and Matt Oh, Gates. my God. And, and honestly, you have to think about that as well, which is you have, and I mean to say this respectfully, people who seem in per, more interested in performative cheap shots than they do in helping their, their districts out yep. and helping the country out. She may have more, have more so, problems you know, in her new district. She may have. It, exactly. So I, I think that the way to go for me is, um, you know, I believe in bipartisanship. I've, I've worked a lot with colleagues on both sides of the aisle in the state legislature. But I also think there's too much performative bipartisanship, and I don't want to do that, which is I don't want to compromise my values or the promises I've met, made to get into office just so that I can you know, have a bill with the Republican. If, if Republicans want to work with me on issues like homelessness or climate or guns, great. I, I'm happy to work with them, even even Boebert and Gates. But you know, I don't want to seek out Republicans who right now seem so ideologically polarized uh, and, and we've seen what happens when they're in charge. They it will can't bite get them. anything done, literally. It will bite they them. They can't even pick their own leadership and stick with it. Um, My friend calls I, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene the roller derby queens of Washington, D.C., which is perfect. Boebert is currently shopping for a district with darker theaters. <laughs> if she's going to find it. Hey, listen, uh, Senator, we, we have to go. We're out of time, but we wish you luck. We need you because of your Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae experience to go back to Washington and do protections of consumer protections because I think they're under threat right now. Uh, yeah. And, man, we, we wish you the best of luck. And one last thing I want to mention. You mentioned earlier women's reproductive rights, and uh, that's something we didn't address here, but that that is like the top priority for me is – Going back, protecting, codifying Roe v. Wade, maybe codifying Griswold, the right to privacy. Um, we have to turn back the courts here because the courts are out of control. Uh, and we have to fight for women's rights, which are clearly under attack right now, as are the rights of many, many others. But, hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, happy New Year to everyone. And uh, Thank you for taking time out of your busy thank schedule. You. We appreciate come it. Be come safe. back after the primary and we'll talk again. Take care. Thanks yep. so much. Okay. All right. We'll Bye -bye. see you later.
There he is. Taylor. Are we my ready? My buddy, my buddy. Here's one of our favorite comedians. His latest special dropped on YouTube on December 6th. This week, he's at the Louisville Comedy Club in Louisville, Kentucky, bless his heart. Then the Summit City Comedy Club in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was a runner-up on America's Got Talent, a semifinalist on Last Comic Standing. One of his regular gigs lately has been opening for Mark Marin. That is huge. Very impressive. Welcome, my friend. Nice to see you. Where are you coming to us from right now? Thank you. We even do a sound check. Look, you guys, just, there's so much trust around here. I because know, well. you're, you're guest number two. We're just, we were just, yeah, we worked out the bugs with the state senator. Our sound check was like, a, <laughs> was like um, some prayer. And then we, <laughs> we just roll. No, we, we, you're following a guy that's running for Katie Porter's seat in Congress. So you're on a very big show, Taylor. So is she running for what's the scoop? Is she she's running for Senate now? Exactly. She's, she's, running, she's running for, for Senate. Senate. He's running for her seat. This particular show endorses her competitor, Adam Schiff. But we do want that seat to stay blue. So uh, scandalous. We, oh, I know. But he's running for Katie Porter's seat in Congress. She's endorsing him. And I don't know that she's ever going to find out that we're endorsing Adam Schiff. I'm not going to tell her. Oh, I was no. about to brag that the only person I've ever like done any work for was uh, Katie Porter. I volunteered once for like two hours. That's out of great. Peer pressure. We like, support peer that. pressure. Two hours. No, but you no, guys she's... hate her though. No, I didn't we know love her. No, we do not we hate her. We, we, love, we, love, we love both her. of them. <laughs> we just love Adam a little bit. We're, we're trying to negotiate a power sharing agreement between her <laughs> and Adam Schiff. So where hey, the next you, time Taylor? we invite you on here, make your bed make for your crying bed. out loud. Taylor, you, it looks like a snow drift in Could you make your bed like right now while we watch? <laughs> no. Listen, I'm just I'm looking for controversy. Like I feel like I should say like I endorse uh, who's the Republican running. You endorse Couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> you endorse I support Mitch Jeb McConnell. Bush for yeah. I support <laughs> Jeb Bush for California Jeb Senate. Bush. I don't know. All right, so listen. Hey, where yeah. are you? Are right, you're you're I'm, going, in, I'm in Georgia. Okay. You're going to Louisville for tomorrow or something? Where's your gig in Louisville? I'm going to Louisville Comedy Club and then Fort Wayne has a club called Summit City Comedy Club. Mm-hmm. Then I go to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I oh, know you have a lot of fans in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. That's big, cool though. Big, Canadian big, big audiences friends. are fantastic. Yep, the audiences love us. They are. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm so, doing a lot of traveling right now and, uh, I'm, and I'm, I, I wish I could be there in the studio and, and give you guys hugs if oh, you're into well, that. Well, you're, you're, you're giving us hugs by being so successful. We're going to talk all about it. Are you, do you have a big <laughs> uh, intro for Taylor? Right? Yes. Oh, okay, roll it out. I, I did it, it and you me. weren't paying a damn bit of attention. I just you did, did it. I, it was uh, four uh, paragraphs right. of... He's holding it like he's got something more to <laughs> well, read, Well, that's because Taylor. I'm old and I have visual uh, problems so and stressful. I have to hold it in front of me. I've Unlike really... most comedians, Taylor Williamson, you seem comfortable with yourself, and I love that about you. On your site, you have a picture of yourself with your dog, allowing your dog to steal focus from you in the picture, which takes a lot of sort of being centered. Most uh, comedians are too narcissistic for that. Plus, you're down to earth enough to name your dog Betty, which I think is one of the great <laughs> names for a dog. How is Betty? Do you take Betty's Betty on the great. road with you? I try to, yeah. As lo- whenever I have an opening act who I trust to hold my dog, um, <laughs> then I... Uh, then I I do so, but I've been warned by some comedians like not to bring your dog to comedy clubs because someone uh, told me that they left their they brought their dog to the comedy store in the eighties, and then uh, they asked Wild Willie Parsons to hold their dog oh, while no. during the performance. No, no, no. And then they came back and their dog wasn't alive. Dog was anymore. gone. No, no, no. But that seems like a respect <laughs> to Wild Willie Parsons. I'm not looking for lawsuits, but. It seems like, although I'm looking for controversy, just right below lawsuit controversy, like like a threat maybe, but 
I feel like that's not someone I would trust. I don't know him at all, but the name is not a person. Who do you trust with with hold your dog? There's too much crossfire cocaine at the comedy store. Like even (laughs) if no one's in and just like your dog in that proximity could like drop dead. Like, so I just, Speaking of the comedy store, that's where you tape this YouTube special. Yeah. Right. And which is, I mean, that, that main room is pregnant with, with, with comedy history and ghosts and and stuff. How was that? How was that? Um, Betty is here. She will make an appearance. Oh, we'd like to meet Betty. Yeah. I want viewers and listeners to know. Um, but, uh, it was really, it was great. Listen, you've been there. It's, it's a wonderful place. It's a terrible place. It's a special Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. and it's a unique place. All comedians have a conflicted relationship with the comedy We're both technically paid regulars. Yeah. But Mitzi Mitzi never puts me on the list. I don't know what's (laughs) up with her, but. Well, she she hasn't been on the list lately for a different reason. Because she has (laughs) passed away. She's. We, we, we do. Our condolences. And as you say often when you're talking to Mark Mirren about anybody, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. There's though. a lot of. <laughs> there were a lot. <laughs> you're opening for Mark, which is huge exposure for yeah, you. Yeah, he this. impressed the hell out of Mark Mirren. That's who just saw it him was... as this kid walking around and then watched the special and all of a sudden, you know, breakthrough. Taylor's funny. It was, it was a big moment. Yeah, I've been, I've been going there for 20 years. I started at the comedy store in, in La Jolla and San Diego. I took rest in peace. Polly Shore's sister, daughter of Mitzi, Sandy Shore, had a comedy workshop. And I'm 17. I'm like, okay, that sounds interesting. And so at the end of my comedy special, uh, I have a clip of my first time on stage, which is kind of cute if anyone oh. wants to see it's that. It's adorable. But, so, but yeah, so like I've been going there for a long time and I've seen Mark Marin for like three minutes every two years. We have like some kind of like awkward conversation and he's talked about my jokes on the, on his podcast before, but he never knew who I was, you know? And, um, and, uh, but it was very, it's very flattering, you know? So like him putting me out his podcast is getting me into these other podcasts. I mean, like, listen, you guys had me on years ago. So, uh, you're MVP VIP. I'll never forget. We that. saw the talent early. It's easy for open. him to draft on your success and put you on there. We had you when you were an unpolished diamond. But we did That's not true. open the door for other podcasts. We were like, we're on, hey Taylor, because Taylor's been on every pot. Jake, you know my my sister's child. Jake is here. He's seen you on What's every pot. You are my all star guest. You are the Bill Murray. I would take that of my Letterman or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. So You're, you have I'm a couple honored. of dates with him coming up. I, did I write those dates down? Bill Murray or Mark Marin? Mark Marin at, at Largo or where? I don't know where you're working. We with just him. did Largo. If you go to taylorwilliamson.com, it has all my tour dates on there. Yeah. That's the easy. Thing Do you go to on the do, road with I, him too? So we, it's not a major, th- I mean, I'm, I'm very excited, but we're doing a couple of dates. We did oh, okay. Largo in LA and so we're doing some a San Diego and San Francisco date. And then that's, it's, that's it. So we'll see. I'm not asking for anything, you know, I'm but like, there's a cliffhanger. if you ask me for more, I'm grateful. If you listen to the Mark Maron, Taylor, Taylor on Mark Maron, there's a cliffhanger at the end. Taylor says, Hey, can we get lunch? And then the show just kind of ends. So <laughs> did you guys, <laughs> did you guys have lunch? We didn't have lunch. Okay. We spent New Year's Eve together, but it wasn't because we were hanging out, but we were at the comedy store. Okay. So, but we'll, I'll, if anyone asks, yeah, we spent New Year's Eve together. It's getting serious. It's not, it's not a lot. Who, who were your heroes <laughs> when, when you were doing the open mics, those god-awful experiences that you can't even explain to non-comedians? Oh, it's terrible. I, and I just, you ever tried doing a, a, a random show because someone asked you and then you like re, these days and then you end up at an open mic and you're like, whoa, it is happening. Yeah, right. And then they, it's I a bringer room and it's all people who have heard you 500 times before. It's just awful. 
It's, it's like boot camp in the military. You can, you can have, only go through it once in your life. You show up and they say, you can have five more minutes if you bring 500 more people. <laughs> right. So like you're on your flip phone, you know, <laughs> texting people. And like, I never... I never did bringer shows because I never could. I never could. I literally, I truly, not even being a smartass, like I never could. People like bring, you have to bring 10 people. I'm like, I can't. I, I don't know 10 I people. Can't. Yeah. I don't know 10 people who will pay to see me. I still don't. I've been on this for 20 years. I still can't get 10 people to see me. <laughs> but uh, uh, what, was, what was the question? Is, who, did, uh, who did you watch early in your life that melted your sure. heart that made you want to do it? Sure. I mean, it's, Honest answer is I was a pro wrestling fan as a kid, like hardcore. And I saw this documentary on Andy Kaufman and when I was in like eighth or ninth grade and that got me into comedy. And then, but before, I previously had listened to like Jeff Foxworthy's album when I was a kid. Like that's something that's a kid accessible, you know, mm -hmm. that the, you're, you might be a redneck jokes. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. for like seventh grade, Taylor, I talk in third person now. Taylor, Taylor talks in mm -hmm. third person now. Uh, like that was like really cool. And then, uh, but then when I was really getting into it, like Mitch Hedberg was really special to me. And uh, then I, when I found out about Stephen Wright, mm -hmm. like he was really special to me and they all still are obviously. And then um, uh, uh, um, who else? Uh, Stephen Wright uh, to me is a person unmatched because he can make the most funny and profound humor out of the fewest possible words. He's just unbelievable. Yeah, and like I'm, I'm very fascinated by people like that too who can make a joke absolutely level ten funny. And if you tell it to your friend, they go, "Oh, okay." Yeah, no, it's, it's but like him. when someone's the whole package where you have to hear it from mm -hmm. them and see them and, and the timing and everything. Like, 100%. but Taylor, I, I want to say cool. that your special, which anyone can watch on YouTube, it's completely free. Your special, I watched by myself on my computer. I wasn't even comfortable. I was at, sitting at my desk. I laughed out loud at least 15 times. Oh, that means your, the world to me. Your storytelling and your writing are so good. It's just the best. I mean, it is top Thank you. level. So tell us uh, about your special and how you decided which jokes went in, how you crafted your material for it. Wow, that's so nice. You sent me the sweetest text, which you know means the world, and it's a cliche sentence to say, but it really does. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh uh yeah listen i'm really proud of this thing like i've been doing this business a long time and i've been waiting for opportunities i've been hustling really hard on things but you know like spent trying to sell shows and then i get a production company attached that takes a year sometimes and then getting a network attached that's another six months to a year and then the network says no that's like six months for them to say no and then you know what maybe we can take it back and bring it to another network that's another six months of no's and so i've been doing that kind of stuff for a long time and I've been having like quote success, but there's no, nothing is, I haven't crossed the finish line in a long time. It's not IMDb so, worthy as you were explaining to, to Mark Marin. It doesn't make its yeah, way to IMDb yeah. as a thing like, you There's did. no evidence I've done anything right. for, <laughs> for a long time. So I just, I'm betting on myself. I'm the first artist to do this where I just make it myself. No one else has ever done this. You guys don't know what this is like. We just do it yourself. I'm unfamiliar no, with the concept. Continue. I created it myself mm -hmm. and... Uh, it's very expensive, but it's it's a good feeling once it's done and people send you nice messages like you did. And so I, I decided to do a 30 minute special instead of 60 minute because I'm honestly I feel like I'm relaunching myself. Like I'm grateful for America's Got Talent and all the things I've done and all the podcasts you had me on and all, all the things. But I'm like, 
uh, I'm just pretending like no one's ever heard of me and I'm, I'm going to put myself out there with a brand new act. And I feel like 30 minutes is a good amount for nice to meet you. This I'm Taylor. I'm a comedian. And this is the best act I've ever done. Very and smart. it ended up being about 36 minutes with because just some I recorded longer, obviously. And then I was like, you know what? I don't like telling these jokes and people like them hearing them. You were so six why don't min- I just put them out there? You were six minutes funnier than you thought. <laughs> Did you have any mentors when you were coming up? People that took you along and helped you write and do that kind of stuff? It was me. I I never had a real mentor, Fritz. You're looking. Oh, okay. Oh, she was my mentor. Mm -hmm. Yes. Respect. But I never, I never really had, I mean, you really were there for me a lot and have been and continue to be. And it means, and I appreciate it so much. And, uh, uh, but I have never had like somebody who takes me under their wing and like comics aren't like that. For- they're too worried that you're going to end up better than them and they're just going to hate you even more and you're going to take gigs away from them. It's just a hard thing. It is interesting. Like I see, I know I have friends who like open for someone famous and then they don't really help them. They kind of keep them there. But there are people who do that too. They help people and they they let them they spread their wings and fly. You know, mm-hmm. the stories about Carlos Mencia is like if one of his openers got famous, he would like kind of he would. Well, their first headlining weekend, he would come and headline their headlining weekend and just like Ugh. pee on them, basically, you know, like wow. and uh, the worst stories too. But like, I, I never, no, I never had a mentor. Like, I got to tour with Tom Wilson when I was younger. That was really special. Um, He's such and, a great uh, guy. And uh, but did, did you ever have a mentor? Either never, of you? no. I, you're on your own. You have to find out who you are on your own. Nobody can really tell you how to write for yourself. You have to make the mistakes on your own, and don't look for another comedian. As a matter of fact, the better you do in a room, the quieter the other comedians watching you get. It's just it's it's dark. It's it's all the reasons the comics are comics. They're so insecure with themselves that helping somebody else would probably ruin my career. But so there's another reason for it, Fritz, and What's that? it's that it's such a solitary activity, yeah. and so much of show business is. Collect- Collaborative, where you know, screenwriter needs an actor, needs a director, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a this is a very solitary uh, profession. Yeah. You're up there, you're you're alone, and so I think that feeling you retain that feeling of like how alone you are throughout the day, yeah. and that anyone else on the stage is not you on the stage, and therefore is a threat. So it's you know, yes, I think comedians laugh together. And comedians who have comedians uh, as friends have the funniest friends in the world. But there is that loneliness of like, it's got to be all me. So when it comes down to like the performance part of it, you do feel isolated. I mean, speak to that, Taylor, because I am not a professional comedian the way you are. Yeah, well, I do. I will say this. I do see a lot of people lifting each other up these days. Mm -hmm. And it is pretty special. And... I mean, like Mark Maron just impacted my life tremendously by being the first, like, top fifty podcast in the world to be like, "I'll have you on." And someone he doesn't, he doesn't know me, you know, like, like, and uh, and that really opened cool. the gates for other major podcasts to have me on. So, like, he really like, and I got. Can I tell you this? The money that I spent, I'm in tremendous debt because of my special, but I got enough work. I got so much work because of him and. Uh, a couple other people having me on their podcasts and just like opening the and so comedy clubs are giving me work I haven't gotten in years so it's like it's interesting how well you know his was the purest help uh, purest type of mentorship because he liked your material before he even met you so it wasn't a friendship thing like he was doing a friend of solid he just loved your talent and then the friendship grew out of there which is kind of cool in a way 
No, it's very nice. I'm, I'm so grateful, and uh, I and it, honestly, it's it's. I haven't been paying attention to the whole podcast world, like you know, in school where they're like, look at your own paper, paper. Don't look at other people's work. I tried to do that. It's honestly one of the dumbest things I've done in my career because there's people selling out arenas off a podcast from their podcast, mm-hmm. and right. it's just it's just it's so interesting. Like yeah. I, I'm really interested yeah. in not just podcasting, but all the other ways in which. Since, you know, Fritz started or since I was doing comedy, uh, uh, how the task of being a comedian has shifted into like several different gears that you need to be able to, you know, be be able to kind of smoothly transition into, which would be TikTok, YouTube, podcasting, uh, social media. Do you find that uh, comedians, when you guys are all talking, are you talking about like how do they strategize social media or are you talking about how some people love it and are really good at it and some people hate it and resent it? I mean, it is a very common topic, but it's the people I talk to are the people like I respect, you know, and the people I respect don't enjoy this stuff Mm. because one yes we started at the time when you only had to tell jokes at night and you could sleep all day and play video games like yeah 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 not that i was ever just that guy but that was a that was a wonderful aspect of being comedian that's not why i got into it at all whatever but like but uh, i've always been hustling on things whatever but it's really poisonous honestly the social social media being like if you meet with an agent or a manager or trying to sell a tv show or trying to get attention nobody goes how special is this artist they go how many followers do precisely that's how you get booked in a room and that takes the responsibility of marketing away from the club you do your own marketing they're having that problem at the ice house right now really yeah you have to have billions of uh x followers and because that way they don't have to advertise or do anything you'll bring your own crowd which is that's that's makes me so sad and you know there are people who are good businessmen and the people who are good comedians and those guys that were able to you know before thinking with the social media blew up you know dane cook and all these guys that made a whole career out of sitting down and answering myspace notifications every day i was never good at that right i, I was horrible but it's that. two things it's being good at coming up with stuff that's not gonna that's gonna that's gonna just go out and be gone or like in other words disposable thoughts that you had that have no shelf life and understanding technology like those two traits are required and not everyone who's good at standing oh, on a stage so bad at that yeah so so taylor like you kind of were in the middle of that where it sort of came on you pretty quickly after you had started your career so how, how did you adapt to it and how are you uh handling it all all of it i haven't adapted to it i'm not good i don't have a big following from social media and stuff and i'm more proud of I'm I'm more proud now than I've ever been as who I am as an artist, but it's funny, like, and this isn't like a depressing statement. It is. I'm not saying it in a depressing way. I'm saying it's like, just matter of fact, it doesn't matter anymore. No one cares how special you are as an artist. So with that, it's like, it could be freeing and it still helps to be good, you know, like, but (laughs) it's just, that's not the game. And the game always probably was selling tickets at the end of the day, but it's uh, it's very sense. confusing. And now people are performing for the algorithm instead of performing for no, what's best. No, a thousand and, and all percent. The hour, and then and what happens hours, is it backfires because I had to, I just had this discussion. Bob Fisher, that I don't know if you know him, owned the Ice House course. before he sold it. 
great guy. He said the problem was after social media got big, you could have a social media influencer that could mention one time on a Twitter feed or something that he was going to be at the Ice House and sell the place out in 20 minutes. But then when the people came to see him, he had no act. There was no entertainment there. It was a guy who just was used to doing it on Twitter, and there was nothing funny about it. It was awful. People are walking out. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's eating itself. Yeah, you and can't the people, just... There's no more... There's no like like there's an art gallery and you have a curator like someone like Mitzi Shore yeah, like lover exactly. lover or hater she was the person who decided I've dogs fighting behind yeah. me sorry well, I wonder, um, can we meet? but like lover or hater she was the one who decided you're worthy you're not and it wasn't fair but that's what it was now it's the the people are in charge but it's the people mixed with China's messed up algorithm that's made to <laughs> destroy society like honestly you no know? you're you're like, 100 you know, in, in, right in China they're only allowed to use TikTok for 45 minutes a day and that's the fact. And I, I've heard that their algorithm sends them like violin playing and like science. And we're, we're sent trash, like people yeah. burn people with hot water challenge, you know? Like, mm. so it's a, we're living in a like Twilight Zone episode where, and then listen, there's a lot of talented people who've been doing this. Like Ian Bag is blowing up and he's been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Todd Glass has a great following from social media. And these are talented guys who've been doing it for a long time. So there is, there is, it's good for, for a lot of people. And there's a way to make it good for you if you figure it out, but it's a slot machine and I should be talking, I should be writing all day. I, I shouldn't be clipping videos and trying to write the right hashtag. And exactly. I shouldn't be talking to comedians about, you know, I don't hear comedians talk about how funny someone is. Oh, man, did you hear that, that joke someone wrote? Or did you watch that TV show someone wrote on or whatever? People talk about that guy has so many followers. Oh, really? That guy no, sells it's a lot of true. Tickets. It's so depressingly true. But I think you have something which I've always said uh, is 50% of your acceptance as a comic. You are so comfortable to watch on stage. And whatever you say comes from empathy and comes from self-analysis and you're just really comfortable at making people comfortable and i i think that's invaluable and it's half the battle you know instead of being a joke machine and just going up there and telling jokes that don't come from any soulful place uh, i I think you're really good at that and the special shows it that means the world to me. Thank you. That's so so sweet. Yeah, I don't know. It's all it's okay. It's just like this this time period is kind of a dumpster fire. But like <laughs> I'm like, how do I navigate? So I'm, I'm I feel like my career is on the good track for the first time in ten years, and I'm just like it's like and it, when I did America's Got Talent, it was like a tornado, like of good of good, but it was I couldn't handle it. It was too so much. Too mm. it was too much at once, and it was terrifying and had no one helping me whatever and it, it wasn't healthy for me or anybody to experience and some people can handle it better than i could and it's really uh overwhelming but now i have a slow and steady positive thing from putting out my own thing and uh and and i'm i'm, res- I'm, grat- I'm full of gratitude for like people having me on their platforms and people like nick swartzen just randomly shared my special on his instagram the other day with i didn't ask him to like that meant a lot to me you know like mm-hmm. i've always admired him and Oh yeah, he's and, great. Uh, That's wonderful. So yeah, like it's interesting what you're what you're describing, Taylor, because it's sort of like the difference between going on someone else's crazy wild ride and or slowly building your own adventure, you know, from scratch, you know, and 
definitely you should have stepped on that ride when you did. I mean, it just definitely launched you into space, and then you were out there like looking for oxygen. But I, <laughs> and I know that analogy. was scary for you because that, that trajectory was horrifying for even the juggler or the you know the dog sword swallower or whatever whoever else was you know in that hotel with you. <laughs> you know they kept whittling it down, and Taylor, Taylor would call me like panicky, like oh, they want to put my mom in my backstory. I'm like, <laughs> and then you know the last thing that happened and. Taylor's told the story a million times, but I'm going to ask you to tell it again because it's just it's just the strangest thing where you have to, at the finale, repeat one of your acts. And Taylor's like, I'm a comedian. I cannot tell the same jokes. Tell the story from there, Taylor. Because what did you do well, to make I, it special? So if anyone wants to see it on my YouTube channel, Taylor Williamson, I have my comedy special live at the Comedy Store, but I also have my whole America's Got Talent journey and it's i got runner up and it's fun to watch and see how that went maybe and uh i think so but uh yeah so in the finale episode they had us do two performances and the second one they wanted us to redo a performance from earlier in the season which like a if you're a country singer you can do the same song but you can have uh a big band behind you instead of just acoustic or like mm -hmm. if you're the uh if you're the opera tenor singers, you can have a choir behind you, you know, or whatever. And I was like, I can't repeat my same jokes. They're like, that's what they wanted me to do. And I, and I was like, so it was, it was on me. Like, they were like, why don't you do the same subjects, but just different stories? And like, <laughs> oh, God, oh, they didn't know anything about comedy. Oh, yeah. But I'm cool. like, I mean, I just, yeah. And I'm just terrified of bombing on the biggest show on TV, on the biggest episode. Yeah. And, um, but uh, so I I talked to some comedian friends and uh, and just came up with a like, crazy idea of like what if uh, my whole shtick is this is terrible what is happening you can't make me do this and I turned that into the thing I had a fight with producers because they're like you can't produce your own segment you can't because they have, they have a ninety second video package before you walk on stage and I was like I need your I need the video package to be that you guys are screwing me over. <laughs> and that we need to make it like a sketch basically and they're like you can't do that i'm like i need you to do that that like, we can't promise anything i'm like well i'm gonna bomb the first words i say i'm gonna bomb when i walk on stage because and then they also had to get like inside scoop is um the when they have a band on stage on those shows and like a choir oftentimes it's pre-recorded just so nothing goes wrong and it's a game show so they legally have no issue of the mistake is on the production, you know? Mm -hmm. So the choir was pre-recorded for the other performers. And, the, and they have actors, essentially, singing. In the, robes. <laughs> yeah, actors. exactly. Millie Vanilli so, in robes. Wow. So I needed to... So they were like, well, we'll see what we can do because it costs a lot of money to do the recording. They're like, hey, Taylor, great news. The, we already are going to have... So I wanted to point to the choir and have them say my punchline, but black poodles love fat white bitches. So he, which is, he is had whatever a choir saying his punchlines to make it more of a more of a spectacle production. That's yeah. funny. So that they're like, well, and it's like some legendary studio too, where like I'm the Beatles have recorded or whatever. It's like one of those kind of places where like I just totally desecrated it and uh, whatever. But um, <laughs> so they did that, and then I got to do a whole shtick of. I have a joke about a camel, so I said, maybe we can have a guy in a camel outfit come out, and then like that didn't work. I, I had a whole thing of, like, this isn't working. How about this? Let's try the – can we get the choir back here? And then the choir came out, and I had fireworks, and it was really stupid there and wonderful. There were fireworks, and, uh, yeah. And the American flag, I think, happened. And I, 
I had to fight for fireworks too. I was like, you gotta give me fireworks. It's not, I literally fought with the executive producer. He was a wonderful guy. We had a, a, like a polite debate where I was like, it's not, it's genuinely like racist, whatever racist is for comedians or prejudice or whatever, that you, you, you do so much for the singers and for the dancers and all these things. Why can't I have fireworks? Honestly, I had to have that conversation. And they're like, well, we have like a, like a, like a lame amount of fireworks we can give fireworks you. That's even limit. better. Yeah, <laughs> give like, me the trash like, fireworks. He didn't get dancers. Give me a road flare. Give he me something. Yeah, road flare. But like that was you trying to create yourself within their bloated structure. Wow. And now here we are 10 years later where you're just like building it organically. Like this is stand-up comedy, which is what I do. Did that help your road work though? Did it give you a little bump in your appearances and stuff? Oh, it changed my life. I've been living off of that show for 10 years. Oh, like wow. it's it truly has like everything it's it was everything to me. Like I I as much as I'm ready to never talk about it again, I'm also <laughs> extremely But honestly, I'm extremely grateful cuz it's 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 the biggest thing I ever did and such a major thing. I I get recognized when I go to different countries just walking around and like wow. and random people find those clips because of YouTube and stuff and I'm so grateful to that goofy program and uh, what's funny is I don't think I could do it today if like I got an audition for it. Like I don't think I have, I think I'm healthier now. Mm. I don't know how much healthier, but like I went on because I was desperate. I just don't think I have, I don't if you watch the audition, like I don't know if you anyone watches it, I was going crazy. The whole time was very stressful. Like, you know, I, th- I talked to you all the time while I was doing that, but yeah. like it was, I think I'd be like, this is not healthy. I'm not going to do this. I don't like <laughs> competitive tr- comedy situations. I was in a couple no, it's of terrible. Yeah. the, the uh, what were you in? Were they, you know, I was talking to uh, uh, some comedian from San Francisco the other day. We were talking about when I first got out here. Oh, those contests that they had at clubs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Every night they'd have a different contest, at a different club. And what would happen is your neighbor, Bobby Slayton, and would rent a bus and bring all the best comedians in the United States, Paula Poundstone and Dana Carvey and Bobby Slayton and and uh, Kevin, uh, uh, you know, the, the great guy from... Um, from uh, a few good men, the actor who's a very funny Kevin comedian. Pollack. Yeah, Kevin Pollock. They'd all come down here for the contest, and they'd blow the doors yeah. off this contest, <laughs> get in their freaking bus, and go back up to San Francisco. Wow! And it was just, I, I, the, the competitive nature. I, I didn't sleep for two nights ahead of this thing, was, and I had no chance of even being competitive. Like it's just oh, like, awful. I don't like competition in comedy. Yeah, it's insane, it's and and also it's almost it's also worse when you're competing against dogs and like dancers. Oh and my acrobats god, and, man! Well, you yeah. have a great gift. You're so comfortable to watch. You're a great writer, and oh, I just Thank know you're you. off to the races, my friend. Thanks for so, coming on the show. Everybody can watch the special, and it's on YouTube. Just put in Taylor. You just put in Taylor. I mean, I know Mark was making fun of the title of the show, but I think it's it, <laughs> it's pretty brilliant because it's just called what it is. So that if you Google it, you find it. And I think listen, that's- I'm just trying to t- listen. That that place is uh, has been wonderful and terrible to me. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to celebrate it, but also like, let me use your name. Let's make some money together. Let's make a thing like. 
and uh yeah i'm I'm really proud of it and i'm grateful i got to come on your thing and and then anyone who watches it uh, it'd be so cool and uh leave a comment your friends put a like thumbs it. up and leave a comment if you like it you yes. beautifully described the comedian's relationship is conflicted with the comedy store even people that had great success out of there i went to mitzi's memorial service uh, uh which was hysterical and sandra bernhardt came there oh were you there yeah yeah we uh, and uh uh, no, it wasn't. It was Taylor Negron's memorial. I'm sorry. Uh, I hate to use this, give you the name of the deceased. But uh, it was hysterical. And Sandra Bernhardt hadn't been there in a long time. And she came out on stage. Paulie introduced her. And and it was a long pregnant pause. And she looked at everybody and said, I hate this building. Oh, I was <laughs> there. I did go. Wasn't was that there. unbelievable? I got one of the biggest laughs of the day. I thought, boom, that describes the relationship with everybody. <laughs> Yeah, but that shows also shows how special Taylor was that she would go oh back. Oh my God, Taylor, Taylor his was, so was fantastic, special. and there and, and Paula Poundstone's remembrances of living with him in the apartment. Oh my God, and the drapes and everything. It was hysterical, and the clips they showed. It was wonderful. I think people's yeah. memories of the Comedy Store are also fraught with memories of growing up, becoming yourself, and this desperation of wanting this so badly. This yeah. place for yourself on mm -hmm. the stage where you're accepted and creative, and it's and you know it's so palpable, and it lives in your heart when you're 40, when you're 80. You know, it just stays there. What yeah. that felt like. Well, yeah, have a good time a on the road. Be safe, especially Thank in you. Kentucky. I'm going to recommend. <laughs> I'm going to recommend a bulletproof vest for your. Your performances there. His oh, performances good. are like nonpartisan. You no, know? I know that. Yeah. Are. No, I'm just. I'm no, just... I, I try to cause some problems. I, when I go to Kentucky, I talk about how much I love being a Republican and I hate Democrats, though. Well, that's <laughs> that's self-preservation, my friend. Listen, Whoa, yeah, you're so you know, good. To, hey, Kentucky has a has a has Andy Bashir as yeah. the, as their governor. Yes, they, so, have, uh, they have odd politics. Yes, they, well, anyway. I should say love Democrats. I don't know. I'll, I don't know which one. To, I'll I'll let you know how, if, if I survive. But thanks, <laughs> no, you you're guys. Be just fine. Travel Taylor, safely, my friend. I love you. Come back into the studio when you're here in town and uh love you i'd love to we'll give you a hug in person thank you be well happy new year okay guys bye honey okay i'm going to do our closing credits mm -hmm. so that he doesn't have to sit through them and they go a little something like this we would love to continue this conversation with you on instagram and twitter we are at media path pod and on facebook where our show page is media path podcast and our facebook group is media path with fritz and wheezy podcast community you can find full video podcast episodes loaded with wonderful bonus visual content on our youtube channel media path podcast and on youtube now you have a little handle it's at media path podcast you can write to us at media path podcast at gmail.com and if you enjoy the show please give us a nice rating wherever you get your podcasts and talk about us on social media you can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com and we want to thank our wonderful guests taylor williamson and dave min vote for dave min and our studio audience amy planker jake planker our team includes dina friedman john maddox bill Filipiak, thomas hubble mason brown garrett arch chris baldwin jordan reyes and you our theme music our theme music is by me and john maddox i'm louise planker here with fritz coleman be well and wise and we will see you along the media path happy new year Take your question.